Thank you, Justin. We'll be tonight uh, mostly in chapter 3 of Hebrews, if you're taking out your Bibles. We uh, got right near the end of chapter 2 last week, and uh, we're going to just touch really briefly on the last verse in chapter 2 before jumping into the argument for chapter 3. But that uh, last song was very fitting uh, for, for the theme of this, this passage, the, the faithfulness uh, of Christ. Anyone need a, uh, a handout here? We're good? All right. Mike's, Mike's running around. I've got some more up here if we need some. All right, quick review. We, how, how many, where are our Awana people? Is there Awana people in here? Hey, Awana people. Welcome. We're in Hebrews, by the way. Um, and uh, you're kind of jumping in uh, midstream. But uh, for your sake, I'll do just a little bit of catch up so you can get a sense of where we've been. So we were in chapter 2 last time. And uh, we're talking about, obviously, the superiority of Christ and, uh, and, and what he has done for us. And... Uh, Last week, specifically, we talked about how Christ has fulfilled what we have failed in, uh, that we were made a little lower than the angels, and we were given dominion mandate, and we, we blew it, right? Uh, and then Christ was made a little lower than the angels for a short time so that he could taste death for everyone, and he could, uh, he could be, become the perfect Savior, the perfect high priest for us and, uh, to bring many sons to glory. We looked at how because he came and identified with us as humans, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, that he can look at us and call us family, and he's not ashamed to call us family. Um, he gladly receives that title because of his finished work for us on the cross. And so chapter 2 is, is focusing on how he was made like us in every respect, and we're just going to briefly touch on last verse 18, which we didn't really get to dig into much last week. Uh, before we jump in to chapter 3. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to guide us in his word. Lord, um, we pray that as we look into your holy word, your inspired scripture, that we would come uh, humbly um, and expectantly. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would open our eyes to the truths of it, that you would guide us as we, as we interpret it, that it, we would be submitted to its meaning and not impose our own meaning upon it, and most importantly, Lord, that our lives would be changed, our thinking would be changed um, by the truths that we glean from it tonight. Guide us as we look in your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Verse 18, uh, to, to, we're, we're kind of jumping in midstream in a thought. I'll start in verse 17. Therefore he made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 4, verse 18 because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Those who are being tempted, who is that referring to? That's us, right? And going through our human experience and experiencing normal everyday temptations that go along with being a weak human being in a sin-cursed world. We are being tempted, and Christ, Son of God in the flesh, is able to help us. And why is he able to help us? What 
what gives him the ability to be a helper for us in our temptation. That's right. And we see that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you see this parallel, uh, this parallelism here. He suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus suffered through resisting temptation. Did you notice that? Where it says he himself has suffered when tempted. What kind of suffering did Jesus experience? It's the suffering he experienced as he resisted temptation. And if you've ever actively resisted temptation, you know there's some suffering there, right? You're, you're, you're pushing up against uh, sin. You're pushing up against Satan. You're pushing up against your own flesh. And that's, there is suffering there. And Christ suffered when tempted. He was offered many times through his life easier routes. Um, and, and yet, time and time again, he rejected those easier paths. He endured all the way to the end, suffering temptation, so that ultimately Christ could suffer death for us. And as such, there's solidarity between him and us. And he went through what we go through and more so that he could be our ready source of help as we navigate the temptations of this life. Why did Jesus go through such suffering, such temptation? Because he wants to help you. He wants to be a present help in your temptation. What an incredible Savior we have. We'll go back to this theme later on because uh, he's going to come re- revisit it in chapter 4 and cha- uh, in chapter 5. His, uh, his sympathy and his, and his help uh, because of his experience as a human being. But let's go ahead and jump into chapter 3 as he turns uh, and starts focusing on a new subject. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 6 before we uh, dig into these verses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, much as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want to begin by noticing, again, as we always try to do, focusing on the connections between uh, paragraphs. And chapter 3 begins with therefore. Whoops, that was supposed to be a highlighter. There we go. Therefore. In other words, he's drawing a conclusion based off of what he has just said. That Jesus has come to earth. He's our Savior. He's our High Priest. So therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And we actually see some echoes of chapter 2 in this first verse of chapter 3. First of all, we're called holy brothers. We see this echoed in chapter 2, verse 11, where we are those who are being sanctified. We see that right up here. In verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
all have one source. So we are sanctified in Christ. We have been made holy. Holy brothers. We saw that, didn't we? That same verse, actually, 2.11. Because we've been sanctified, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And this reminds me of the phrase in verse 10, where uh, God is bringing many sons to glory. And so what is he doing here? He is, he is including the readers in the description that he has just laid out, the mission that Christ has set out to accomplish, to bring many sons to glory, to sanctify those whom he's rescuing, to add to his family, and what he does now in chapter 3, verse 1, and says, and that's you guys, right? You are the holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So he's inviting the audience, he's inviting the readers to identify with this saved group of people that Christ came to redeem. And he says, I want you to do something, and what are they called to do? What is the application of chapter 2 based off of chapter 3, verse 1? What are we called to do? Yeah, it's consider Jesus, right? Therefore, brothers, because he's done everything, consider Jesus. You know, this is sometimes an application that, uh, that preachers fail to include in their sermons. Right? Applications are usually just based off of, okay, because of this truth, now go do this, and then do this, and then do this, and then do this, and then do this, right? And those are, those are fair applications. Sometimes, that's often what Scripture calls us to do. Sometimes, like here, Scripture called the application, the appropriate response to Scripture is to consider, to think about, to dwell on, to meditate. And here, he wants us to stop and consider Jesus. And he's described in a couple of ways. The apostle in the high priest of our confession. And in fact, we see this also echoed in, from chapter 2. The apostle, now when you hear apostle, what does an apostle do? Um, he, what's his job? What's an apostle? To proclaim, to proclaim, okay? So he's going to who? Who does apostle get sent to? People, right? The world, right? Getting sent to the people on behalf of Christ or God, right? So an apostle is, is being sent by God on or get sent to the people on behalf of God. What about a high priest? Where, who does a high priest approach? God on behalf of who? The people, right? So you see these two components of Christ's mission, his status as the founder of our salvation. He's the apostle. He is sent from God to the people. And he's our high priest. He is sent on behalf of the people to the presence of God. You think of in the book of Job, when, when Job laments, oh, that there were someone to stand between us, a mediator between me and God, right? To put a hand on both of us and mediate for us. And Christ steps in and fulfills this role of being our apostle and our high priest. And so we're called to consider Jesus. Now, we're supposed to consider something specific about Jesus. And in the next few verses, he's going to highlight a particular characteristic of Jesus 
through a repeated word that shows up multiple times. Can anyone find that repeated word that describes who Jesus is? Faithful, very good. Jesus was faithful, just as Moses was faithful. We see it down here in verse 5, faithful. Christ is faithful. And I think that's it, those four. So what are we supposed to consider about Jesus? Jesus is faithful. Now, what does faithful mean? Give me some synonyms. What's faithful mean? Trustworthy. Trustworthy. That's a good one. What else? Loyal, sure. Dependable. Dependable. Those are all good. So, so Jesus is trustworthy. He's loyal. He's dependable. Why is this an important attribute of Christ that we should consider and dwell on when it relates to our relationship with him, our salvation? Why is, that, why is considering the faithfulness of Christ of the utmost importance? Yeah, because we know our own faithlessness. So someone's got to be faithful, and it's not us, right? Any other thoughts there? Mike? Why would we put our trust in someone who's not faithful? Good, yeah. So, so again, what, what, is, what, have we, what have we been called to do in chapter 2, right? It says, you have to pay close attention to this gospel, right? Jesus is greater than everything. He is supreme. And so you have to trust him, right? And then that implies the question, is he trustworthy, right? Is it right for me to give everything to him? Or in the case of the Hebrews who might be struggling with, well, do I add to it? Do I do, I do works, right? Do I have to compensate for a lack of that? And he's trying to make the point, no, he is completely trustworthy. Justin. It's also because of who appointed. Yeah. So it makes a big deal in the next verse who the appointment was. And the Jewish people, obviously, in their covenant relationship with the Lord, and they thought that way. Yeah. Because of his appointment. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he points to the relationship of, of God the Father appointing Christ to fulfill this mission. And there's a level of trustworthiness here, right? Where that should, it should increase our confidence that he is trustworthy because of who appointed him. We see that right there in verse 2. Who is, who is faithful to him who appointed him. So Christ was appointed to a mission. And that's, that's to be the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he was completely trustworthy and dependable in that task. He was completely faithful. And, and, and again, we ask, why is this important? Well, your level of trust in someone is directly proportional to their level of faithfulness. You will only trust someone as far as they are trustworthy. If someone is 75% trustworthy, right, you might trust him with some things, but not the big things. You might trust him depending on the circumstances, but you're not going to trust them completely, right? But with Christ, he is completely trustworthy. He is completely faithful. And if these readers are to trust Jesus alone and not their works, then they must be fully convinced of Jesus's trustworthiness. And how does the author of Hebrews argue for the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of Jesus. He uses an illustration. And what illustration does he use? Moses. Why would he highlight Moses? Why would this be a convincing argument? What's that? Yeah, he, he spoke with him face to face, right? 
The name of the book is Hebrews. I mean, I mean, how do you think the Hebrews felt about Moses? Pretty good guy, right? Yeah. He's the man, right? We like Moses. Um, in fact, um, in John, when Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees and the scribes, they mock Jesus and they say, you are, or, or they, they speak to the man who was healed, the, the, the blind man who was healed. Uh, the Pharisees say to the man who was healed by Jesus, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from, right? So they elevate Moses. Moses is the man. Moses is the guy. We know that God spoke through Moses. He was faithful. And in fact, when we see this phrase right here, he was faithful in all God's house. This is an Old Testament quote. He's quoting from Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. It says this, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Right there, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And so they, they, he alludes to this quote from God, from the Father, who points to Moses and says, Moses is, 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 is so faithful. He's faithful over my house. In fact, I, I speak to him in a way I don't speak to other prophets, right? And so he, he's entrusted much to Moses. And so the Hebrews would elevate Moses as, as the ultimate servant. The ultimate, and if someone is a servant, they have to be found faithful, 1 Corinthians 4.2. And Moses was faithful. What is God's house well, when it says Moses is faithful in all God's house, what is the house? What's that referring to? Okay, right? Right, yeah. So, so you know, initially, especially if we think in terms of the Old Testament exodus, we might, when we hear God's house, we might automatically think, well, the tabernacle, right, the temple. But that's not what it's talking about here. This is talking about the people, the household, the family of God. So Moses was faithful in all God's house. And in fact, if, if we want you know, to, to make this case, if you skip down in the passage, down to verse 6, uh, when he kind of ties it to Jesus being faithful, we see this phrase, uh, God is faith, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Right? So, so uh, the house is the people, the people of God. So Moses was faithful in the family of God, appointed by God himself. So the house is the people of God, and Moses was completely faithful in that mission. And so to make his case about Jesus' faithfulness, the author says, Jesus was faithful just like Moses was faithful. All right? So right now, is he drawing a contrast or a similarity? It's, it's a similarity, right? He's faithful, just like Moses is faithful, right? And so, again, your Hebrew listeners are going to be like, yeah, oh, okay, I get that. That's quite the claim, that he's as faithful as Moses was, right? There's a contrast there, too, though. Moses was, as a servant, right? 
That's right, yeah. But he starts as, as, a, as a similarity, right? Just like Moses, but then he's going to kind of up it a little bit, and he's going to start elevating Christ far above Moses, right? But it's, it's, it's interesting to think how the readers would see just the similarity to Moses as, as a bold claim, right? And so he's faithful like Moses. What was Moses' mission? Well, he brought the children out of Israel. He delivered the law to them. He governed and judged the people. And he says Jesus was faithful in his mission. Well, what was Jesus' mission? To deliver us from death. To offer, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so he delivered us from death to offer forgiveness of sins, to identify with fallen humanity in order to adopt us into his family. And when you think about Moses and his faithfulness, we see his faithfulness in spite of the constant failings of the people, the grumbling of the people, the complaining, the rebellion, and Moses time and time again just staying faithful to that. And Christ in the same way was faithful despite our failings and despite our sin. And so Christ is completely faithful. There's scripture after scripture in the New Testament that points to just Christ's complete trustworthiness in the mission that he was called to do. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6.38, for I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 13, 1, at the the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He didn't quit. Linda. Sunday at the very end, we are his house. Mm -hmm. House there be church? Well, yeah, church is the, the people of God, right? And so, yes, yeah, we are, his, we are his people. We are his house, absolutely. Um, John 17, 4, Jesus prays to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus was completely faithful. How faithful? Well, you remember that guy, Moses? He was faithful, kind of like Moses was faithful. But then, and going back to what Kurt said, he, he starts to increase it a little bit. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And, and how does he make this argument? In which way is Jesus better than Moses? Because he's the son. He's the son. Right. So, so we, again, he takes that illustration of the house. And he plays that out to illustrate how Jesus is more superior than Moses. And he says, he's counted more worthy of more glory than Moses, just as much as more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So, and then verse 4 kind of explains, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So how do we know Jesus is counted more worthy of Moses? Well, based off what we just learned in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that, that he, is, he is the creator of all things. He is, he, is, he is God in flesh. He created us. He's our maker. And so just like a builder of a house has more glory than the house itself, Jesus has more glory than Moses, right? When you see a beautiful mansion, you don't give credit to the house, 
right? You don't say, good job, house. That looks really, you look really nice. No, you look at the design, you look at the creation, and it automatically gives glory to the one who created it. It, it reflects the glory of the designer. And Jesus, and here's something really cool, right? Again, if you want to just kind of pile up a list of passages that point to the divinity of Christ, that Christ, that the Bible says that Christ is God, where do we see this here? So, the builder of the house, who's that? That's Jesus, right? Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? God. God. All right? So to argue the case that Jesus is more superior than Moses, he points to the fact that Jesus is God. Because the builder of all things is God, Jesus is the builder of the house. Right? And so it points to the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. Any, any, any uh, comments or questions before we continue on? Yeah, Justin. A little line at the end of Moses and that line as much. Yes. Is that like a dramatic pause? That's, that's an English grammatical tool, you know. For me, I do a dash when I don't know what other punctuation to put there, and it just looks cool, right? <laughs> right, yeah, semicolon. That's if you want to look, you know, scholarly, really smart, you put a semicolon in there. Yeah. Um, no, it's, any grammar teachers in here want to describe what a, why there's a dash here? Outside of my pay grade, right? Building, yeah, it's building on the thought that came before it, right? Just what Rebecca said. Yeah, <laughs> that's why. All right, and then look in verse five, by, 5 and 6. There's a direct comparison between Moses and Jesus. And we're going to do a little, a little trivia, a little hunt here to see if you can find the differences. There's two parallel phrases. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. All right? Spot the words that are different, other than Christ and Moses. All right, I'll give you that one. What else? Okay, so there is, whoops. So, servant and son. What else? Whoa. Ooh, all right, there's one hiding. Moses was faithful. Christ is faithful. There's one more. In and over. Good. So Moses was faithful in all God's house. Moses is faithful over God's house. And each contrast kind of points to a different truth that shows Christ's superiority. Was versus is. How does that show Christ's superiority over Moses? He's, he's eternal, right? Christ, Moses was faithful. He's, he's dead now. He's not faithful anymore, all right? He doesn't, he doesn't have a task. He's not stewarded over, over the people of God, all right? He's faithful in versus over. How does that describe Christ's superiority? What's that? Christ is the head. He's Christ is the head, all right? Um, in fact, uh, let me see. Where is it? There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. So, so Moses is part of the house. What, is that, what are we saying there? He is part of the people of God, right? He is part of the group of people that Christ, that, that God was, was delivering. So he was appointed as a steward, but he was still part of the house. Christ is over the house. Why is he over the house? Because he is the builder of the house. He's the creator, right? And then finally, the last one would be servant versus son. 
And there's, when you look at, at passage after passage in the Old Testament, Moses is repeatedly described as a servant. Moses, my servant, is what God calls him. And Jesus is God's son. Kind of a, a bonus thing here. What was Moses' job as a servant, according to verse 5? To testify to the things that would be spoken later. What kind of things would be spoken later? Christ. John, uh, John chapter 5, 45 through 46. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Who? Moses. Moses. On whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. And so Jesus himself says, you're setting your hope on Moses, right? The law that he brought to you, and, 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 and you are his disciples. But if you were to stand before Moses right now, he would accuse you because you're missing the picture. And he wrote and he pointed of a future Messiah. He pointed toward the Son. And Moses' role was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And this is going to, and when we talk about the law, Moses, in, in, in verses to come, the, um, the sacrifices, the temple, one of the faults of, of the readers, and, 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 and consequently us, is we place our hope on things that are designed to point to something else, right? And, we, and the law is meant to point, point our hope toward Christ. The sacrifices were meant to point our hope toward Christ. The temple was meant to point our hope toward Christ. And our human tendency is to place our hope in the sign rather than what the sign is pointing to. And so he's making this argument that, yes, you revere Moses, you respect Moses, you honor Moses, but Christ is better than Moses. He is faithful like Moses, but he is worthy of so much more glory and honor than Moses because he's the creator. And so, as we close out verse 6, what are we called to do? Yeah, we have to hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And in fact, this is a conditional clause. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. At the beginning of chapter 3, we're told to consider Jesus. And our passage concludes, these six verses, concludes with a similar command. Hold fast to Jesus. And so, what is, the, what is the application for us as we consider Jesus and his faithfulness? Cling to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and don't let go. We are his house. We are his people if we are clinging to Christ. Now, here's where it gets really fun. Is this saying that we can lose our salvation? We are his house if we hold fast in our confidence. 
In other words, if we stop holding fast, we're going to stop being his house. What's that? You weren't his house in the first place. Okay, you weren't his house in the first place. So in other words, it's not saying a conditional thing that, that, that we must continue doing in order to keep being his house. He's saying, what is the distinguishing characteristic of those who are part of his family? It's those who are holding fast to him, right? In other words, you could simplify it and say, what is the distinguishing characteristic of a believer? They believe, right? They, they cling to him. Yes, Elsie. Um, going back to verse 5, mm -hmm. I see um, a contrast of the servant and the son. The son, I think, has some undertones of being an owner. Yes. He, he, he is not only the builder, but mm -hmm. the owner of the house. Yes, that's correct. In, in fact, it's, Moses it's, is just the servant of the house. He was the servant of the house. Yes. Jesus is the owner and builder. Right. That's exactly correct. Uh, a servant or a steward was keeping, keeping something on behalf of someone else. A son in a house was seen as the inheritor of that house, right? And so, so yes, he is the owner as well. Um, so going, going to this question of can we lose our salvation, that's not what this phrase is saying. We know that Jesus will never lose anyone who has been saved by him. John 6, 37-39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So scripture clearly says that, that those who come to him, who are saved by him, are held by him. Like I love the song, he will hold me fast when I fear my faith will fail. We also know, scripture tells us, that those who reject the faith reveal that they were not of the family of God to begin with. First John chapter 2 verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So what's the distinguishing characteristic of someone who, are, who is of us? Continuing. But they went out because it so that it might become plain or obvious that they all are not of us. Did you have an additional thought there? I was going to say they're not faithful. Right, right. And so in a nutshell, we could say a continued devotion to Christ is the evidence of a regenerated heart. The author's saying, if it's true that, that, that you're showing the proof of the new life clinging to Christ, then you are indeed his house. Now, later on in verse 12, he's going to warn the church that not everyone among them has a believing heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the author's looking at this church and saying, you all are kind of in this group, but you need to be careful because just because you're in this group does not mean that you're part of his family. And some of you might have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to rebel against him. And so there's, an, there's, there's, this, there's this imploring, hold fast, continue, because that's what Christians do, that those who save, are saved by Christ believe in Christ, and they don't stop believing in Christ. 
And this isn't as troubling as we might think. I mean, the, the, the proof that you are a Christian is seen in the fact that you don't stop being a Christian. You, you, you hold tightly to him. Does that mean that we don't waver and go up and down and go through periods of doubt? Absolutely, we all have those times. But at the very core of Christian faith is a clinging to Christ, even when we fear our faith will fail. We are trusting in him. So how do you know who is in God's house? It's those who cling to our confidence. Those who reject him show that they are not part of his house. But lest we think this is shifting our focus to it's all about our faithfulness, it's all about our ability to believe, whose faithfulness are we talking about in this passage? Christ's faithfulness, right? If indeed we hold fast our confidence, what's our confidence? Christ is our confidence, right? In other words, this isn't talking about our ability to be confident, right? It's not saying hold fast to your ability to stay confident all the time. Because if that were the case, we'd all be in really, really big trouble. It's not saying that if I ever feel unconfident in my faith, then I'm not a Christian. It's not talking about your ability to be confident. It's saying that Jesus is your confidence. He is the source of your confidence because of his faithfulness, not ours. We can cling to him. It's the same thing in the next phrase. If we hold fast, number one, our confidence, and number two, our boasting in our hope. Is this talking about my ability to hope? Is this talking about the fact that if I feel helpless or hopeless, that means I'm not a Christian? No, it's, it's not talking about your ability to stay hopeful. It's saying that Jesus is your hope. He's the source of your hope. Later on, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. It says that, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Whenever you see that word hope, it's talking about Christ. It's not talking about how good can you hope? How strong is your hope? Hope is centered in a person. Confidence is centered in a person. And that's why we're called to consider Jesus because he is our confidence. He is our hope. And those who are part of his house are those who just cling to him. Right? They're not clinging to their works. They're not clinging to their, to their own faith. They're not clinging to their successes. They're clinging to Christ because they know that Christ alone is faithful. Christ alone is trustworthy. Remember, the whole argument here is not about our trustworthiness. It's not about our ability. It's about Christ's faithfulness. And what are we called to do as Christians? Cling to him. That's what his family does. Questions or comments on that? Yeah, Jason. Yeah, just, um, you know, I'm a math guy, so I never liked grammar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I started studying the Bible, and the grammar becomes so important. Yeah. So, like, you know, the word if there is a subordinating conjunction, yeah. um, which is a precondition if, so that, that holding fast if is the precondition for us being the house, for one, and then 
think two, um, the two words there, confidence and hope, I love the word hope there in Greek, is mm -hmm. opus. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful word. It's so much stronger than the English word in the sense that, you know, so many people might have said, man, I hope I win the Powerball. Yeah. Um, but that's like a, a whimsical perhaps, whereas right. in the Greek it's a guarantee, yes. a hope that is rooted in a guarantee. Yeah, it's so a confident it's, expectation. It's absolute confidence, and then mm -hmm. the confidence, I love the, the uh, lexic lexical definition, I have, <coughs> attitude of openness that stems from freedom and lack of fear. Hmm. It's so powerful, right? Yeah. That's that one sentence. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, and where does fear arise? Well, it's a lack of of confidence that the one we're placing our hope or confidence in is completely trustworthy. This is that evidence of trepidation that I'm not quite sure they can fall through. But confidence reveals a, conveys a complete lack of fear in your, in your trust, your confidence in him. So if, if, we, if we come to verse 6 and walk away from thinking about it, it's all up to me, right? Then we've completely missed the point of this entire passage. Because the whole passage is talking about how Christ has completed it all. He is completely faithful. He is completely trustworthy. Any questions? Because I'm about to get into a really, really fun section. All right? That we won't be able to finish tonight. All right? Paul. I think you may have uh, mentioned it this, when we started Hebrews, but I can't help wondering why this book needed to be written. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there were there were Hebrews who had a hard time letting go of the law. Yeah, yeah. And that's not too foreign of a concept for us, is it, right? I mean, we, 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 we cling to our own, uh, our own legalism, our own laws that we might create for ourselves, um, rather than simply resting and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, right? And so, yes, this is something that I think the the, the Hebrews you know, in this particular group would, would struggle with. He's trying to convey to them, you can, right? You can trust Christ. He is completely faithful. You can cling to him because he's, more, he's kind of more worthy of more glory than Moses, right? That guy you really honor and revere. And so a convincing case, especially from a Jewish perspective of the complete and total trustworthiness of Christ. Yeah. No, that I, I try to understand, you know, the, the why the, the Islamic people have so much difficult on, on accepting this truth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and not, just, not, not just Islamic people, but people of any religion other than Christianity, right? Because any other religion focuses on what can I achieve? What can I do? How can I earn this relationship with Christ? And it's against our human nature for us to come to the point where we say, I can't, I can't. Christ accomplished it for me, and my role is to cling to him, to cling to his faithfulness. That's against everything in us. It's something that Christ has to accomplish in us. In the following, all right, enough encouragement. We're going to get to a warning passage, all right? Um, in the following passage, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 7, extending down through the end of the chapter and actually bleeding over into chapter 4 is our first warning passage in the book of Hebrews. There's multiple warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and, and, and these are the passages that make Hebrews a difficult book to interpret. When you read these warning passages, and there is no shortage of differences and disagreements about how to interpret 
these passages because you read some of these, and this isn't even the most difficult one. There's a difficult one later, but as you read some of these, you think, wow, that really looks like you can lose your salvation. All right, and, and as a, maybe I'll read it, and maybe you can see um, what I'm talking about. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they also always do as go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those with, uh, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Okay, now... There's a couple verses in there that might make you scratch your head. One of them might be verse 12. He says, take care, brothers, and then describe the possibility of them falling away. Is he saying, Christians can fall away. Christians can, can have an evil, unbelieving heart. Uh, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, and what we started having confidence, if we keep hold of that all the way to the end, then we'll share in Christ, okay? So there's some passages in here that make you think, yikes, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I interpret this? And I'll say, just what we'll flesh out in more detail next time is, I know, it's my excuse to go study more before I uh, actually talk about it. No, I... I <laughs> I have worked through this passage, and if we had time, we can go through it. But uh, uh, I don't mind stalling and, uh, and saving most of it for next time. Um, the key to really understanding this passage is understanding the illustration that he's using to make his argument. And the, what's the illustration that he is using? The Exodus, right? He's talking about the people of Israel that are coming up out of Egypt. They're being delivered. They're going to the Promised Land. But then a whole generation of Israelites don't make it because they had unbelieving hearts, okay? So just to dip into this, as we, uh, as we uh, start this section, and we'll have to pick up with this next time. Therefore, again, there is another, connect another connector, all right? We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our connect confidence and our boasting in the end. And so therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Right here, he is quoting from a psalm, Psalm 95. Psalm 95 begins by glorifying God and his creation. Oh, come, let us worship him, bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God, 
and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that though they, they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what is the application that he is imploring us, the readers, to follow? Verse 8, don't harden your hearts. There's the command. Remember, he was just talking about Moses and his faithfulness with Israel. And so now he's expanding on that Exodus theme and points back to the response of the people of Israel to God as a way to illustrate how we should respond to Jesus. And he's referring back to the wilderness wanderings. When a generation wandered 40 years in the desert in a time of testing. Let's just dig into this before we, and, and, and this is a, just a note, a suggestion. When you go to a passage um, that's difficult, and it kind of is, is freaking you out a little bit, and you're like, oh, what do I do with this? It's really easy to approach that passage just trying to focus on what it doesn't mean, right? And, and it actually can hinder your interpretation. Where you're like, oh, it can't mean that, it can't mean that, it can't mean that, it can't mean that. And so I'd encourage you, when it comes to this passage, just take a deep breath, read it, and seek to just understand its plain meaning and, and the argument that's being made before you start wrestling with the difficulties. It's always good to just start with Scripture before you jump into the difficulty of it. So, the command, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So again, he's pointing back to a time in Israel's history that, again, the readers would be very familiar with. How would you describe the experience of the people in the wilderness? What did they experience, according to verse 9? They saw it all, didn't they? Right? What kind of things did they see? They saw the plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw manna from heaven. They saw quail provided in the wilderness. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw all of these things. Right? And, and when you read your Old Testament, you, you just scratch your head. And you're like, how could you keep disbelieving God and complaining when you see all of these things? It just points to just how sinful our own hearts are, because we do the exact same thing. But these people saw everything. They all received the manna from heaven. They all heard his holy law. They all enjoyed his provision. But some of them put God to the test. And here's something really interesting. So, they all saw my works for 40 years. But what was God's rebuke of them in verse 10? They have not known my ways. How is that possible for them to see all the works of God for 40 years, but they don't know his ways? What distinction is being made here? I mean, it seems like to see his works is to know his ways, but that's not the case. So in what sense can someone see the works of God but not know the ways of God? Creation. Okay. What's that? Creation testifies oh. of God. Okay. So that's a, they 
reject those words. That's a great example, Romans 1, right? That, that, that the things about God are made plain to them because through the things that are created so that they are without excuse, they see his works, but they exchange the glory of God for the image of corruptible man. And so they, they, they see his works, but they don't know his ways. All right, any other thoughts there? Yeah. I, I saw this in, in the Bronx because the church became activists and social justice and all this stuff. And, and I saw... Uh, uh, as my pastor being guided by a, by a Buddhist into mm. these council of churches and all this stuff. And, mm. you know, that was something that, you know, as when I saw it, I, my heart just yeah. almost, you know, broke. So you see a church, right, that, 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 that says, you know, we love God, but there's a disconnect. There's something not yeah. connecting there. Jason. Ah, so yeah, yeah, we use it all the time. Seeing is believing, not necessarily, right? You can see it all and yet not believe. Vera? It says they always go astray in their heart. Mm. So that's, that's the main thing, what's really in their heart. Okay, good, good. Vera pointed out. What, what's, what's the distinction? Well, it's actually what lies in between, right? They see his works around them. What's going on on the inside? Yeah, their hearts are being hardened. They're going astray. Now, outwardly, are they following the crowd? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're going through the wilderness. They're eating the manna. They're, 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 they're walk, they walk through the Red Sea. But inwardly, in their heart, what are they doing? They're going their own way. They're going their opposite direction, right? And so, in a sense, you could say they're enjoying all the benefits of being in the house, so to speak. But they're not of the house, Right? And so we really need to, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand the illustration he's pointing to that in the wilderness wanderings, there was a group of people, but within that group of people, there were those who were disbelieving and rejecting and going astray in their hearts, all the while seeing his works 40 years. And for us as Christians, I mean, this is not hard for us to believe, right? I mean, we can have a church, we can have a group of Christians and yet, no, within a body of believers, there are many who are going astray in their hearts the entire time. And they're enjoying the benefits of hearing the word preached. And they're enjoying the benefits of, of, of being a part of the family of God and, and being served by other Christians. And, and, and they get to experience all those things. But inwardly, they are not actually knowing the ways of God. And so that's what, that, that gives a good distinction. It helps us frame this, this argument. Mike, you had your hand up there. Yeah, um... I see the people, they had bitterness. Yeah. They were stuck out there in the wilderness. Right. They wanted to go back. Yeah. And, and it's almost like these people want to go back to their sin. They yes. Want, you know, they, they don't want to, uh, it's somewhere in their heart that they want to go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what we see in the, in the wilderness, the people keep on romanticizing Egypt, right? I want to go back there. Yeah. They actually called Egypt. The land flowing with milk and honey, right? They're like, and so, and it started with bitterness. It started with discontent. It started with a lack of contentment in what Christ had provided, and that kind of grew into a a, dis, a distrust that God is good, which resulted in a disbelief that. Focusing on the wrong thing. Right, and 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 it's a great additional study right there of of how does belief how does how do we get to unbelief? It often just begins with the desires of your own heart. And when those are unmet, 
you doubt God's goodness, and when you doubt God's goodness, you doubt him himself. David. I'm wondering if this will be similar to the millennial kingdom, mm -hmm. where Christ is ruling, Yes. and there's peace, Right. but there are still people who see all that, Yes. but their hearts are against Christ. Yeah, and, and again, again yeah, some people think like, yeah, right, Christ is going to reign for a thousand years on earth, and there's still going to be people who reject him and rise up against him after that time. I, that's really easy to believe, and especially when you look at the Old Testament Exodus, right? Because you're exactly right, that same thing happens. Our hearts are so deceitful. I do have to stop there. Joe, Joe la last thought, and then we'll close. We're also talking about this group of people who are just now leaving Egypt, who've been subjected to slavery for years and years, and during that time, we're actually asking, you know, where was God then? Yeah. You know, so where's now? You know? So it's probably one of the things that led them have that, that heart and heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, next week will be a lot of fun, so be sure to come back for that, because uh, we'll dig into this more. But uh, uh, for now, uh, the, the big thing, and I, I want to rein it back to the main focus of, of the bulk of our time tonight, is what we saw in verses 1 through 6. Christ is completely faithful. He is trustworthy. Cling to your confidence. Boast in your hope, which is Christ, not in your own abilities. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Um, we just praise you, Lord, for being a trustworthy and faithful God. Help us cling to you, Lord. Help us run to you as we sing, um, that we would see you as complete.